This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. And before we get started today, I want to invite you to subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's right. After years of neglecting this very precious real estate on the Internet, I am committing to producing content over there. The easiest way to find me over on YouTube is go to my website, Mr. Productivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, Mr. Productivity.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page and you'll see the YouTube logo there. Just click it and subscribe and you will get exclusive content that I'm going to be putting on the YouTube. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a psychologist you may have seen in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, or the New York Daily News. He's researched the nature of overeating for decades and self-funded a study of over 40,000 participants. Today, Glenn shares his personal journey out of obesity and provides practical tips to stop overeating quickly. Dr. Livingston, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I've been looking forward to it all week, and you can call me Glenn. All right. Well, you can, you can also say Dr. Livingston, I presume, if you want to. Well, I will call you Glenn, and maybe I'll as long as I don't call you late for dinner. That's okay. an old joke. So I, I'm excited to have you on the show because I heard, and there's so much fake news out there. I want to get it from you because you've done the study that I just mentioned. I heard that people who are obese have more are more likely to get sick and maybe even die when, if they get COVID than those who are not obese. Is that true? Um, so first of all, I want to make sure you know I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a psychologist. But the statistic that I heard was that 78% of the people who were hospitalized or died from COVID were obese. Wow. Yeah. So, is- so, so you're significantly more likely to wind up in the hospital and die if you're obese. And um, I say that with all the love and respect for my obese clients and a formerly obese person myself, but the numbers don't lie. That is, that is sobering when you hear that because I'm 56 years young. I only say that to put into context what I do. So I have been running every day since August 29th, 2017, not because I was obese but because I happened to write an art, read an article on runnersworld.com during the height of Hurricane Harvey when we couldn't leave our house because the streets were flooded that said what I learned from running every day one mile. And I'm like, well, I could run one mile a day. And I started and I have not missed a day since. And then shortly thereafter, my mother was diagnosed with late onset Alzheimer's. And I happened to talk to her neuropsychologist. And I said, is there anything I can do to mitigate getting Alzheimer's? Because my mom's mom died of Alzheimer's. My mom will on likelihood die of Alzheimer's. And he said, yeah, diet, exercise, and sleep. So I have been intentional for about five or six years, really taking care of myself. And now along comes COVID and they're saying, hey, if the healthy people, if you let's put the vaccine aside the people, healthier people are more likely to be able to fight off COVID. But if you are obese, those are the people on the, not all of them, but those are the people who are on the ventilators. Those are the people who are passing away. And even before COVID people, I look at people in the grocery store who are 12, 13 years old and way more than I do. And I'm like, there's so many things wrong with that. So what say you to the whole thing I just said? Well, I think that obesity is the plague of the 21st century, right? Um, you know, the, the rates, I believe, have almost tripled since 1980. 
the um, rates of cardiovascular disease are up by sixty by eighty percent. Rates of diabetes are up. It, it's um, there are all these diet re- reversible diseases, but w- what's happened is that the big food and big advertising industries are spending billions of dollars to engineer these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins, and it, it's all designed to hit the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result is addiction. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty sad story, but there are ways to defend against it. There are ways to eat healthy despite all this. But you got to remember, we, we didn't have all these bags and boxes and containers on the savannah. We didn't grow up with chocolate bars and chips and Pop-Tarts and pizza. Um, and every time you're looking for the love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache who's laughing all the way to the back. Mm-hmm. So I like to think, um, you know, if you don't have a plan for yourself then you're part of someone else's and their plan for you is not to be healthy. I don't think they're evil. They're doing what the consumer wants them to do, which is to provide plausible deniability. You know, these potato chips are made with avocado oil. Therefore they're healthy, right? Ignore the fact that the density of calories in the absence of nutrition is horrible for you. Ignore the fact that the, uh, roasting process creates acrylamides that are carcinogenic, but they've got avocado oil, so therefore it's okay. It's better than regular potato chips. And and there's a lot of money in doing that. It's perfectly legal. And the consumers vote with their with their dollars. So what are you going to do? I mean, it's it's the Winston Churchill said that cap- capitalism was the worst form of government except for all the others. And one of the things he meant, I think, was that capitalism doesn't protect us from these types of things. So it's up to us to protect ourselves. And I, and I, I, used, to, I used to work for the big food companies. But oh, okay. That's interesting. We'll have to talk about that in just a minute. I remember going to the grocery store with my mom when I was a kid, maybe eight, nine years old. And the cereal aisle was like a 10th of what it is now. Now I walk in there and there is just like row upon row, uh, you know, food, all different colors, marshmallows, toys, all these claims. Hey, you know, it's got a lot of sugar in it, but we've got vitamin D in it. It's it's insane how it has changed. I mean, back then when I went to McDonald's with my parents, it was a treat. I mean, going to McDonald's was maybe once or twice a month. Now people eat that food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Then between they're having cupcakes and, you know, candy at the office. And that's part of it. Mark, not only that, the... Um, servings themselves are larger in size, higher in sugar, high in, higher in addictive chemicals. Food science has progressed. We've had 30 more years of, or 40 more years in your, yours in my cases. I'm the same age as you just about. Um, we, we've had, we've had decades more of research into what makes the consumer coming back for more. They are, um, fantastic at finding your bliss point. That just the right amount of sugar, just the right amount of roasting, just the right amount of chemicals to give you the ultimate satisfaction, but you know, the desire to come back for more. So it's, um, and people think advertising doesn't affect them, but it actually affects you more when you don't think it affects you because your resistance is down. And, um, I'll give you an example. I, I, a good friend of mine became vice president of a major food bar manufacturer. Everybody would recognize the name, so I won't say it. And he told me that as he was leaving the company, the biggest profitable insight that they had was to take the vitamins out of the bar. 
and they put the money into the packaging instead because the vitamins were expensive and they were making them taste bad. So they put the money in the packaging instead and they made these multicolored, diverse, um, bright packages, which in nature would signal a diversity of micronutrients. Like they tell you to eat the rainbow, you know, uh, yeah. yellow carrots and green lettuce and blueberries and strawberries and tomatoes and, and all of those colors on an evolutionary basis signal the availability of micronutrients. But what they're really doing is faking us out. It's a parasitic approach. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember the old TV dinners when you didn't have microwaves? They came in those aluminum foil containers. It wasn't even real food. I mean, the peas didn't look green. The meat was like, what is this? But I remember I used to get treated by my parents when they used to go out to a banquet and I have a babysitter. I thought that was so cool. Banquet dinners, I think that's what it was. It was so funny. Now they say, oh, TV dinners, they're nutritious. And they're not really nutritious because they have to put all these chemicals in there and then flash freeze it. So I think people need to spend more time reading the ingredients list on a packaging. Uh, maybe stay away from packages altogether. Yeah, if it's got a label, it's, it's probably not super nutritious. Um, you know, Depending upon your dietary philosophy, what's nutritious are whole natural foods that could be whole natural plant foods. Maybe it includes, you know, the animal protein. Um, but basically, that's the beginning and end of what's really nutritious, right? Um, there's a lot of, a lot of controversy about all these different supplemental chemicals and, um, you know, vitamins and nutrients that are isolated from the sources that they came from because we used to think there were maybe a dozen vitamins. And minerals. And then we thought there were maybe 200. Now we think there's more like 200,000. So when you're, when you're isolating that from the, um, from the fruits from which they come, you're not necessarily getting the complement of enzymes and nutrients that you need to make. I'm not, I'm not totally against supplementation. I think that it's useful in certain circumstances. And I'm, again, I'm not a medical doctor. I just talk to a lot of them and I talk to, talk to a lot of nutritionists given the nature of what I do. But, but, um, yeah, the, the, now, the horrible thing that happens, and part of what's what's responsible for the obesity, is something called downregulation. When you present a supersized stimulus to the nervous system, it downregulates its natural response. So, for example, I slept underneath the subway in graduate school, and the first two or three weeks, I just couldn't sleep at all. But then two months later, I didn't even hear the subway. Why? Because there was an unnatural supersized stimulus and my brain downregulated because it wasn't, it wasn't critical for me to be alert all the time. The same thing happens with food. If you have a chocolate bar every day, then by the end of a month, an apple is not going to taste sweet to you. You're not going to be able to discern the natural delicious differences between Fuji apples and Gala apples and delicious apples, right? You're not going to taste the natural sugars in different types of leafy green vegetables, is which is, I think, in most dietary philosophies is thought of as one of the most important you know, food groups. And your pleasure response starts to downgrade so much that it gets to the point that the only pleasurable thing is the chocolate bar or something of equal intensity. So what nature has to offer is no longer pleasure to, pleasurable to you. You wind up eating more because if you have like, you know, a bunch of chocolate bars for lunch, your body's still going to cry out for nutrition later. So you wind up having more calories trying to get the nutrition that you desperately need. And, you know, the result of not getting enough pleasure from food and having to seek more calories to get the same nutrition is obesity. 
So it's um, the, the good news is that that process reverses. If you stop having the chocolate bar within a couple of months, your taste buds double in sensitivity and your nervous system starts producing pleasure. Um, but it's a, it's a real trap. And I think it's responsible for the reason that people think they don't like fruit and vegetables. Most people know that if you want to lose weight, you're going to have to eat some fruit and vegetables or at least vegetables. And most people say, I'm doomed because I hate fruit and vegetables. You don't really hate fruit and vegetables. You've been sensitized away from fruit and vegetables. And you can fix that. I would love to know right now at this moment, the listener that is listening to this this podcast, what they're eating. Are they eating a chocolate bar or are they eating an apple? We don't know. I just, that thought just literally popped in my head. I wonder what the listeners are are eating right now. I, I will be honest with you and tell you that I don't eat as good as I should, but I eat better than most people. So yeah. I am a stay at home entrepreneur and my wife works like Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursday nights. And so I will eat Uber Eats or McDonald's time to time, but I do like fruit. I do like you know, vegetables. Uh, one of my favorite things I like to eat is I will have Italian sausage without the bun. And I love colored bell peppers. Now I don't like the taste of green peppers. I love orange and yellow and red peppers. So I try to balance it. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and I'm going to be completely honest on my show. I don't eat as well as I should. And when I eat better, I do feel better, but sometimes I get lazy. You know, it has a lot to do with discipline, but I also do run every day. I do drink water most of the time. So I'm trying to take care of myself, but you're talking about people who don't, who don't eat any fruits and vegetables. They don't ever exercise. Now exercise is a big component and I'm sure, I don't know how heavy you actually topped out at, but the heavier you get, what's that? About 280. 280. So I'm pretty sure when you were 280, you didn't feel like going for a walk, let alone a run or treadmill or anything like that. So the heavier you get, the more unhealthy you get, the less you actually want to do the things that are going to actually pull you out of that slump. Hey, you listening to the Mark Stuchowski podcast. Thank you so much for doing so. I really appreciate it. But are you a Mark Stuchowski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter, and you can sign up right now by going to mrproductivity.com. M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com. That, that's absolutely true, and it's a problem. Um, and we can talk about solutions in a little bit, but... One thing I want your listeners to know that getting healthier with eating doesn't have to be about giving up things. I mean, it can be. And you, you will find that the more you switch from the processed foods to the, you know, more natural foods, the better you're going to feel, the easier it's all going to be. But you can approach this by crowding out the bad stuff with good stuff. So I work with a woman who said, you know what? I don't want to give up fast food. I don't want to give up, um, you know, chicken and all the things that I like to eat, but I'll start every day with healthy goodness. I will have a big green smoothie every morning and I'll just start to crowd out the other stuff with healthy goodness. And that becomes addicting. Your body says, okay, this is where the good stuff is. This is what I want. Right. Right. I, I will tell you, you mentioned apples earlier. And to me, my favorite apple in the world is honey crisp. Yeah, And it drives my wife crazy because she goes, well, they're not on sale. I said, I don't care if they're on sale or not. I love the taste of Honeycrisp. And so even on off season, now, fortunately, we're in the fall and it's apple season. You can get apples everywhere. But I, I love Honeycrisp. And I tried the keto diet for about six weeks. I lost about 12 pounds. But for me, 
on a strictly keto diet, you can't have apples. And I love having apples. I had a guest on my show about three years ago. And I said, I kept hearing the saying, the apple of the day keeps the doctor away. And he says, the reason why is number one, it's a whole food, which means when you eat it, it starts breaking down. You can eat like candy and stuff like that. Your body never can't, can't digest it. And so that's where the saying comes from because it's actually a living, uh, living food. And a lot of the processed food, obviously, is not living. It's dead. And so I try to eat like if I'm going to have a burger, again, my wife and I, we don't have buns with our burgers. We will have the burger and we'll have some chopped up cucumbers or chopped up uh, you know, bell peppers. We love uh, what I call keto salad. That's also known as taco salad. It's just tacos without the, the tortilla shells. And I kind of like that stuff. So I kind of like some days I eat really well, some days I don't. But I would say I probably, if I gave myself a grade where A plus means I'm stellar in terms of my food, I would probably give myself a B, a B minus. I could eat better, but I, I have this thing in my head that says, you know, you drink a lot of water, you do a lot of running, you get a lot of sleep. So you can excuse yourself, but there's never an excuse for eating fast food. Well, what, what you want to do, Mark, is collect evidence of success. Um, people focus, your reptilian brain focuses you on your failures, or the places where you're not doing so well. When you focus on that, you wind up building a failure identity. Mm-hmm. And what, what you want to do is focus on the running, focus on the water that you're drinking, focus on the healthy things that you're doing. And that starts to become addictive. And over time, that success identity crowds out your your failure identity. And... I, I might be the person in the world, you know, we have well over a million readers and uh, almost 13,000 reviews, and we, we talk to 100 new clients a month or so, a little less now. Um, so I, I might be the person who's talked to more binge eaters than anybody else in the world, more overeaters. Than, and I can tell you that I don't know anyone who eats perfectly, including me, including me. I'm very, very good, but um, there's nobody that does perfectly. So it's p- part of the... Um, we call it committing with perfection, but forgiving yourself with dignity. It's kind of like when an archer is aiming at the bullseye. They, when an Olympic archer aims at the bullseye, they know they're not going to hit it 100% of the time. But that's not what they tell themselves. So they commit with perfection, and they look at the bullseye, and they see the arrow going into the bullseye before they let go. It's like they become one. Why do they do that? Because they have to purge their mind of doubt and uncertainty. Doubt and uncertainty are like psychological cancers that drain the energy away from you focusing on your goal. So you have to commit with perfection. But if you miss the target, if you miss the bullseye, then you forgive yourself with dignity. Then you say, okay, by how much did I miss the bullseye? In what direction? What adjustments do I need to make to commit with perfection and do better next time? So you, you, that's a, an iter- iterative process. The reason that people become obese is they don't engage like that. They commit to progress, not perfection. Like, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't, I'll do the best that I can. They try to follow a guideline like eating healthy 90% of the time and indulging 10% of the time, but they don't know which is the 90% and which is the 10%. And so they're constantly fatigued by food decisions. Food decisions wear down your willpower. Willpower is kind of like gas in the tank. And if you're burning willpower all the time on food decisions, you have very little left at the end of the day. So so people become obese because they think maybe I will, maybe I won't. And then they're frightened when they miss the target. They think that they're like they've fallen into some other world where they can't control their hands and their mouth and their legs and their arms and their tongue. 
and they feel powerless and like they're it's hopeless and they just have to eat as much as they can until tomorrow and then they'll try again tomorrow. Sometimes start tomorrow winds up being next year or five years from now. But um, all you really have to do is get up and aim at the target again, making whatever adjustments you can from the feedback that you got. Most people don't define a clear target. Most people don't look very specifically at why they missed and in what direction they missed. So they don't make the adjustments and they don't learn. If you get up and aim again and get up and aim again and get up and aim again, you, you have to succeed. We, we are we are learning organisms. Our brains are very effective and efficient at learning um, unless you distract yourself and don't get up again and aim. That's, that's how it works. What was the catalyst that you went through that said, enough, I, I don't want to be this heavy anymore. <laughs> I, I, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired because I got to imagine it was probably building over days, weeks, or months, maybe even years. And at some point you said, enough, I don't want to yeah. live like this anymore. It, it was a paradigm shift. It, it was, I mean, it was definitely getting sick of it. But it was a paradigm shift. I come from a family of 17 psychologists. And, wow. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. If something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it, how it feels, and nobody <laughs> knows how to fix it. Um, but so I, and you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I, I was a kid and I was obsessed with eating, but it was okay because I'm 6'4 and I'm modestly muscular. And if I worked out a few hours a day, I could get away with it. But when I got older, I couldn't. And I, I was still obsessed with food. I was a psychologist. I was sitting with patients. And I wasn't really there because I was thinking about when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and um, you know, empty the, the delicatessen tray into it. Um, but because I was a psychologist, I thought the problem must be I've got a hole in my heart. Like I must be unhappy about something. And if I can fix that hole in my heart, then I could fix the hole in my stomach. Mm. So I went to see the best psychologists around. I grew up in and around New York City and my parents knew all of them. I went to see a psychiatrist and took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, that's when I did that 40,000 person study eventually. And it was a very soulful and spiritual journey. I learned a lot about myself. I learned how to relate to people in some ways. Um, I don't regret having made it, but it really didn't help me with the overeating. I would lose a little weight, then I get a lot fatter. And I lose a little weight and get a lot fatter. So I didn't go straight up, which most people don't. I was kind of you know, curling all the way up. And um, eventually there were several things that caused me to say, you know what? This is not a game of loving yourself then. This is more of a game of becoming the alpha wolf and dealing with the challenger for leadership. And when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership in the pack, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, somebody needs a hug. It snarls and it growls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. So I have to, I have to introduce a couple of other concepts that I learned along the way. Um, I got knocked out of that way of thinking when I realized what the big food and big advertising industries were doing, which we talked about before. That has nothing to do with the fact that I was in a bad marriage or that my mama didn't love me enough or that I wasn't happy. These are powerful forces which are targeting your reptilian brain. That's significant. The, the feast and famine response and the reptilian brain. It's a survival response. The reptilian brain does not know love. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an amateur neurology student. I'm really not, not an expert. So someone will take me to task with that. But essentially, there's the reptilian brain. And when it looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. It's a very primitive, it's like a bad college drinking game. Eat, mate, or kill. <laughs> <laughs> then, then there's the um, 
there's the mammalian brain which says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on the people that you love? Mm. What impact is that going to have on your tribe? And then there's the neocortex, the most recently evolved part of the brain. It doesn't matter if God put it there or if it's evolved, but it's it's we, we believe it's much more recent. And the neocortex says, okay, wait a minute. Before you mate, eat, mate, or kill a thing, it's not only the people that you love that are important, but what about your long-term goals? What about the person that you want to be in society? What about your spirituality and music and art and contribution to the community and the kind of person you're trying to become? And I thought everything about my journey, all of this, you know, spiritual searching and psychological searching and looking for love had nothing to do with the reptilian brand. So I'm trying to fix something that's a problem in the reptilian brain, which um, I'm trying to fix in the upper brain. It didn't quite make sense. So I also read a book by Jack Trimpey called Rational Recovery, and he works with alcoholics and addicts. And at the time I was coming out of Overeaters Anonymous and I was trying to understand the alternative addiction treatment models, and it really wasn't anything great for for food. But he wrote a fabulous book about um, about black and white addictions, the kind you can give up entirely. And um, essentially he said, you need to take control of the reptilian brain in the same way that you take care, you take control of your reproductive organs or your bladder. So if there's a gorgeous woman walking down the beach here, uh, which I can see from my window, I don't run all the way downstairs and just kiss her on the lips, right? Um, There's a time and a place and a way to approach her. And um, I'm actually kind of shy, so I'd probably just hide in my room, but that's (laughs) that's another story. (laughs) Um, There's a civilized way to go about it. And we're expected to control that very powerful biologic. It's a very powerful urge. We're expected to control it in a civilized society or we can get in a lot of trouble. Same thing with having to urinate. If my bladder told me right now that, Glenn, you really have to pee, I would say, I understand. I don't, but if it did, I'd say, I understand, but I'm talking to Mark now. I'm doing an important interview. You'll have to wait. I will take care of the authentic bodily need later, but I'm in charge, me, Glenn, the human being, the part of civilized society. And I thought to myself, why can't I do that? Why, why can't I just look at this as a bodily organ, you know, the reptilian brain, the brainstem, that generates this urge to break my best laid plans, and I can be the alpha wolf when that happens? Um, then I also did this study where I looked at, I intercepted people that were searching for solutions to stress. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s, when clicks were cheap. And I got 40,000 people to take a survey um, over several years. And I discovered three things, which I thought at the time were brilliant, and they turned out to have nothing to do with it. I discovered that people who who couldn't stop eating chocolate, like me, because I asked people what foods they couldn't stop eating when they were stressed, people who felt like they couldn't stop eating chocolate, like me, tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who uh, couldn't stop eating crunchy, salty things tended to be stressed at work. And people who couldn't stop eating soft, chewy, starchy things like pizza and bagels or pasta, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought that was brilliant. And I thought I was really onto something. So I, I called my mom, who's also a therapist, and said, Mom, um, listen, it was 40 years ago. This was 15 years ago now. But I said, Mom, it was 40 years ago. And I don't care what happened. I'm just trying to figure this out. Why... Do I run to chocolate when I feel stressed or lonely uh, or brokenhearted? This is what I found in the study. I don't get it. And she gets this horrible look on her face and she says, 
I'm so sorry, honey. I, I am just so sorry. And I said, Mom, it doesn't matter. I just want to figure it out. I love you. So she said, when I was one year old, that my dad was a captain in the army and she was frightened they were going to send him to Vietnam. And she was trying to get pregnant with my sister and she thought she was going to be an army widow with two little kids and she was terrified. At the same time, her father, my grandfather, had just gotten out of jail and she had idolized him her whole life and she didn't know that he was doing these types of things. And he really was. He was a criminal and she was horribly depressed. So she said, honey, when you used to come running to me for love or some healthy food, or just to play, I didn't have the wherewithal to do it all the time. So I was sitting and staring at the wall and I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. She'd keep a bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in the refrigerator. I'm dating myself with that brand. But, uh, a bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in the refrigerator on the floor. And I'd go crawling over to it. I'd open the refrigerator. I'd open the bottle. I'd suck on the, on the, on the top and I'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. Mm. And you would think that if this were an emotional problem, that that would have been the catharsis that cured everything. Like, like that was a movie moment. What's supposed to happen then is we should have a big cry and a big hug and forgive each other. And then I would never have trouble with chocolate again. Well, you know, we had a metaphorical hug and a cry. This was over Skype. And it did, it was a valuable conversation. It led me to learn a lot about her and forgive her for a lot of things. And it helped me to forgive myself. So I felt softer on myself, but my chocolate and binging got a lot worse. And the reason they got worse was that there was this crazy thing in my head that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate sized hole in her heart. And until we can get out of this marriage and find the love of our life, we're going to have to go right on binging. Yippee, let's go get some more right now. So there was this voice of justification. And I said, I don't have the whole picture here. I'm thinking the emotional problem is the cause. But if you think of an emotion like a fire, you could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace, and that's an asset, not a liability. It becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around, and they cry, and they laugh, and they hug, and they tell stories, and make memories. It's only if there are holes in the fireplace that an ash can get out and burn down the house. So I said, maybe I've got this wrong. I'm trying to damp down the fire. Maybe I should be fixing the fireplace. Mm. So Now, I did something at this point which is a little embarrassing for a sophisticated psychologist who's been in all those news outlets and, you know, academic journals that you talked about in the beginning. Um, and, and I was not working with overeaters. I had no intention of working with overeaters. I was an overeater myself and I, I just felt like it was unethical. So I was working with child and family instead. Um, okay. So what I did was I decided that I had an inner pig. I decided I was going to call my reptilian brain, my inner pig. I could have called it a food monster. I could have called it my junkyard dog, but I was not going to share this with anybody. So I started a journal and I called it my inner pig. I decided that I had to catch the pig squealing and I had to define exactly what pig slop was. So I came up with a simple rule. Does your to-do list have you overwhelmed? When you join my digital productivity coaching program, you'll learn how to get and stay focused, become untangled from the chaos of your to-do list, experience less overwhelm, and have time to do what you really want to do. Sign up today by clicking the coaching tab at mrproductivity.com. I said, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. That's, that's it. Because chocolate was my problem. I said, I don't think I can give it up entirely, but I could just never have it on a weekday. And if my if I heard a voice in my head when I was at Starbucks that said, you worked out hard enough, you can have that chocolate bar in the counter, 
even though it's a Wednesday, you're not going to gain any weight and you can just start again tomorrow. Um, and besides chocolate grows on a cocoa bean and that's a plant. And so therefore it's a vegetable. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I hear these kind of things. I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my pig squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Um, it's very private. I was not going to share this. And it w- there was a miraculous part of that. And then there was a part that took a year or two to really work out. The miraculous part was it would wake me up and give me these extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision if I wanted to. I didn't always make the right decision. But it made me realize that I was not powerless or helpless. I was no longer confused about this thing inside of me. I no longer felt like I was possessed. There was a space between stimulus and response now, and I could make the right decision if I wanted to. Over time, I started to experiment with different rules, and I realized it was very important to make rules that I would comply with because I needed to prove to my reptilian brain that I was the boss. So it didn't matter so much if I lost weight right away. It mattered that I was in control. And so I would lighten up the rules a little bit. I came up with other types of rules, like things I would always do. You know, I'll always start my day with, you know, two 16-ounce glasses of spring water uh, before I turn on my computer, things like that. And I kept a journal of everything that my pig said. And then I would look for the lies in what it said. So, for example, when I'm at Starbucks and it says, you worked out hard enough, you're not going to gain any weight. You might as well start tomorrow. It's just as easy. I'd say, wait a minute. Um, first of all, I promised that I wouldn't have it on a Wednesday. So it's a lie that it, at, at the very minimum, I am making you the boss instead of making me the boss. And I need to be your boss. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. But more logically, there's a fallacy in its argument because by the principle of neuroplasticity, what fires together, wires together. So if you have a craving for chocolate and you indulge that chocolate, you're making that connection stronger. You're building a more addictive process. You're also reinforcing the thoughts that you had. So if you say, it's just as easy to start tomorrow, you're more likely to think the same thing tomorrow. The truth is, it's not more likely to easy to start tomorrow. It's going to be harder to start tomorrow. If you're in a hole, stop digging, right? You have to use the present moment to be healthy. It's the only moment that you can be healthy. So I would keep a journal like that for about eight years. And that's how I got thin over time. And it wasn't a straight line. You know, I had to experiment with a bunch of different rules. And I, I learned a lot more about the process, like how to, because really what I was doing was switching brains. I was getting out of my reptilian brain and getting into my neocortex. Learned a lot more about how to do that. And, um, and as I was getting divorced in 2015, I'd become a minor partner in a publishing company from some of my business dealings. And I said, I'm not sure what to do next. I'm going to have to close everything down. And he said, well, you know, we need we need one of our own authors to write a really good book so that we can do some marketing experiments because we can't get the authors to do this. And so I spent the summer writing a book and, um, and I sent it to him and he said, Oh my God, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat donuts. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeded to lose almost a hundred pounds. Along the way we published it and we did everything right. I mean, he was, he was in publishing and I was in marketing for a long time. So we knew what to do, but we had no idea it was going to take off the way that we do. And so now I'm in a bookstore sometimes on a first date and people don't quite recognize me by name, but they look at me and they point at me and they go, pig guy, pig guy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my life now. And I run around telling people that 
Uh, yes, I'm a doctor, but I've got a pig inside of me, and maybe you do too. I just when you said that, I'm thinking to myself, could I call this episode like a conversation with the pig guy? Or <laughs> I don't know. It's just like I already had an idea for the title, but I don't know. You know, when it you can, comes if you want to, as you, as you know, marketing. You know, people see a title with the pig guy in there, they're gonna go, "What is this about?" So I don't know. Well. What the pond? What, what, what you want to do with your titles is curiosity plus benefit. So, a conversation with a pig guy engenders the curiosity, but you need a benefit. You know, a conversation with a pig guy about how to stop overeating forever, and, and then you've got a title. Wow, very interesting. Who knows what the title is going to be? We haven't finished the interview yet. <laughs> it's up I, to you. Fascinating, uh, fascinating what you shared with us there. I mean, it's just. We live in a microwave society. So, you know, in October 2021 20, right now, I have decided to go all in on building my YouTube channel, which I've neglected for years. And I had a guest on my show a couple of weeks ago that says, you know, YouTube is the second most popular search engine. It's married to the number one search engine. And I'm like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And so I started reading and studying YouTube. And I look at all these people with 50, 60, 70, 100 million subscribers, and I got a book and the guy says, look, start with your first hundred, then your next 500. You got, you're not going to be the number one YouTuber in a week. It's a, it's a process, uh, learning how to eat right, whether you're morbidly obese, obese, or just a little overweight, or maybe you're, you're fit. You know, I remember my, I, whatever I ate, I was stick thin and in shape. And then I got an email from my body when I hit 33 and it says, dear Mark, happy birthday. We're not working this hard anymore. <laughs> and I ignored it. I ignored that email. I'm like, ah, yeah, whatever. And then I noticed that I started getting a little, you know, a little overweight because my body did tell me I'm not working that hard. And the older you get, you have to take more conscious care of yourself. And I like how you said, just take baby steps. You know, maybe you have an apple or maybe you have one meal that is nutritious. You know, if you are really chaotic in terms of your eating, you're really overweight. Well, having an apple may not make a difference today, but if it starts you down that road of eating better food and saying no to the bad food, then you can look back as you, I think they should journal like you do. Cause I journal and go, wow, when did it start? Oh, I listened to Dr. Livingston on the Mark Stuchowski podcast. I did this one thing. I started doing it consistently. Then I started adding other things known as stacking. I'm like, wow, my life changed. But listener, you got to start. You, you can't hope. Hope is not a strategy to being healthier and losing weight. So, I mean, Dr. Livingston gave you a ton a ton of things to do today by sharing his story. And I would just encourage you just figure out what is one simple thing you can do today and commit to doing it every day. And then who knows where you're going to go. So I, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us before we wrap up. Is there anything left on your heart that you want to share with us today? Well, it's, it's actually exactly what you said. Um, you start with one simple rule, something that you could and would do which isn't too onerous, yet it would make a big difference. So examples might be, I'll never go back for seconds again, or I'll always put my fork down between bites, right? Or I'll never watch, I'll never eat in front of a screen again. Um, something like that. I'll only have pretzels at Major League Baseball games. Um, 
one simple rule, something that's not, it's, it's fairly easy for you to do. And it kind of tricks your brain into reversing direction and getting momentum going in the right way. And then what you do is you listen for that voice inside of you that is trying to get you to break the rule. And when you hear that voice inside of you trying to get you to break the rule, you take a deep breath. And like I like people to breathe in for a kind of seven and out for a kind of 11. The reason for that is that if you were in an emergency situation in the wild, you wouldn't have time to do that. And if you do have time to do that, it means that you can switch nervous systems. Rather than being in your uh, sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight, feast or famine, you know, kill or be killed kind of kind of experience that everything's an emergency, there's no time for thinking. It takes you into a rest and digest, think and strategize thing. And then carry around a little pen and paper um, or a smartphone that you can write on. And after you've taken that breath, say, okay, pig or food monster, why do you want me to break my rule? And write out exactly why it wants you to break the rule. If that's all you do, you'll be teaching yourself how to move from the lower brain to the upper brain. Writing is an upper brain activity. Um, binging or overeating is a lower brain activity, if that's all you do. But you can take it a step further and take another breath and say, where is the lie in what this food monster is telling me? And see if you can disempower the logic. Um, with that simple technique, a lot of people tell me that they make more progress than they made in 30 years. Wow. Um, and, and I certainly did. So, yeah. Another, that's, another that's title I have is eat, mate, or kill question mark. But I, <laughs> I mean, that would really get people to go, wait, stop here. But yeah, it's just, listen, you gave us so much to think about. You've convicted me from the way I'm eating, but it's not what your intention. Your intention was to, I like the one rule. I, I think you're doing great, Mark. I think you're doing terrific. Well, thank you. And, and I think, I think you should think you're doing terrific also. And it was look for small improvements. That's all. That's all. It does. Like when I run, I'm a daily runner, as I mentioned earlier, and I run every day and I don't run to impress anybody. If, if my body says, look it, I only have one mile today. I will run for a mile and then I will walk home. So I listen to my body and I think that's the important thing. I'm one of these people. I weigh myself every morning. Now I know people like Tim Ferriss say, oh, right. Weigh yourself once a, once a week. I weigh myself once a day just to tell my body, this is where you are right now. And that actually says, well, the scale's going down. What am I doing? What did I eat the last yesterday, the day before? And so that's for me. Now, that I mean, it doesn't work for you. But for me, I weigh myself every morning. I take my blood pressure regularly. I'm like, oh, it's kind of high. It's kind of low. But I, I think you, everyone listening to this conversation needs to figure out what is that one thing? That, start with one. Always start with one thing that you can start implementing in your life that's going to begin to change Remember, you're you're not going to change from being this super overweight person to super thin overnight, but it starts with that simple change. And I want to thank yeah. you for sharing. A journey of a million miles starts with a step in the right direction. Absolutely. So I know people want to know more about you and what you're doing. So where can we go to find out? About it, that? It, it all it all comes from the website. If you go to neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. That'll get you to the reader's bonus list. Sign up for that and you'll get a whole bunch of things. The first one is a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We do have hard copies. We do have audible copies in my voice, um, but there's a charge for those. No charge for the electronic formats. When you sign up for that, you will also get a set of recorded coaching sessions, full-length coaching sessions, because I know you must be thinking, 
why does Mark have this doctor on who has a pig inside of him? This is really weird. And it sounds like it must be harsh. Um, it's actually a very compassionate, life-giving process. And you will hear me take people in 45 minutes from feeling despairing and hopeless and powerless about their food situation to feeling enthusiastic and hopeful and empowered in just 45 minutes. And I, I wanted you to hear how we did that. It's all free. This is all free. Um, the third thing you'll get is a set of food plan starter templates. So whether you're doing keto or plant-based or point counting or calorie counting or, you know, vegan or carnivore, whatever you're doing, we've thought through some sample set of rules. We call them starter templates because it's very important that you own your plan. Um, one of the pig strategies is to create these artificial dependencies saying, oh, I'm doing Dr. So-and-so's plan. And then, oh my goodness, that doesn't really work. I guess we'll have to find another guru. But until we do, let's just keep on binging in between, okay? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and, and, and so it's very important that you own your strategy. Those are three of the things you get. There are a whole bunch of other freebies that we have there. We put a lot of time and effort into thinking about how to get people started. I do give away enough information that you can stop binging on your own, especially with the book. Um, there are six other books about specialty topics like nighttime eating and, um, you know, how to deal with particular triggers. But um, we also have a coaching program and that you will find that when you click the big red button and sign up for the um, reader bonuses. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show today. An absolute delight. I learned a lot and I know my listeners did as well. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Mark. It was great. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time and attention for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. Hey, are you a Mark Stucheski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter where I will send you value multiple times a week. And I promise you, every time I send an email out to my insiders, it always has value. So if you want to sign up, absolutely free. Just head on over to mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com.